need to come back to a proper understanding of God's covenantal love for his people and know that it's rooted in strength, in faithfulness, in mercy, in goodness, in devotion. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. God's Word this morning. We have the privilege to be back in our Genesis study. It's been a little while. Uh, as we begin this morning, uh, let us come to God's Word with a respectful attitude uh, of both gratitude and reverence. Uh, we are grateful that God would communicate to us and give us His Word, uh, but we also come with reverence, knowing that although there were human authors, this is not a book written by men but by God himself. And we just finished three Sundays in the book of Proverbs, and we were reminded that true wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. And there will be no wisdom, there will be no worthwhile knowledge at all if we approach God's word in an arrogant, flippant, or callous manner. And so may we delight in his word this morning. Let's have the attitude of the psalmist who said, Oh, how I love your law. I will meditate on it all day long. Growing up, my mother would say to me, uh, One of the most important decisions that you are going to make, Micah, is who you choose to marry. And I'm sure you've been told this, or maybe you've told your children this, or maybe you're at a place right now where you're actually considering this. Because it's true, it's true. Outside of responding to God's sovereign call to salvation, this is the most crucial decision. Uh, the Puritan pastor, Thomas Gattaker, he wrote this woody phrase that I like, it is not evil to marry, but good to be wary. And that's true. It is good to be cautious. Uh, because our culture, as we know, has no respect or understanding of what marriage is. They call it an unnecessary institution that holds back your sexual freedom, a meaningless piece of paper, or just something that will help you financially at tax time. But the faithful Christian understands that marriage was created to display the covenant love that Christ has for his church. We understand that marriage is not primarily about us. It's not all about meeting my need for love, for companionship, for sex, or for having children. Now, of course, all of those things are included, and they're wonderful, but we know that the definition of marriage is so much bigger than us and our needs. It is to model and to show Christ's sacrificial love. It is to be part of the foundational building block of society that God instituted at the beginning of time. And we know that when Christ is the center of our marriage, when we are finding all our joy and all our needs in him, then together we will experience a joyful life as a married couple. And the young person who is seeking to be married must take great care to choose a godly spouse. Uh, and in our passage today and next week, we are going to see God's continued care and providence in the life of Abraham and Isaac, uh, in how he sovereignly worked through Abraham's servant's quest for a wife for Isaac. Uh, 
But before we begin chapter 24, let's review quickly where we have been. Because uh, you may have just started coming to the church over the last month, uh, and you may not have known. We've actually been in a study for most of last year through the book of Genesis. We began by seeing the origin of the world as given to us in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we saw God's promise to crush Satan through the offspring of Eve. And then we have spent chapters 12 through our current chapter studying the life of Abraham. And with Abraham, we find God being faithful to his promises. With Abraham, we, uh, we are seeing how God has a plan to save a people for himself. And with Abraham, we start to learn how God will justify sinners by faith alone. In these chapters, we see Yahweh revealing himself as the covenant-keeping God. And in his covenant with Abraham, he bound himself to this agreement while Abraham was sleeping to show that all of this is based on his unchangeable nature as God. And as we progressed through these chapters, we saw this covenant, though, put to a test because Abraham was not perfectly obedient, was he? He was not infallibly faithful. He sinned many times along the way, but we know God would never waver from his promise. Overall, though, we see Abraham living a life of great faith and obedience, and he sets an amazing example for us all. Our last time in Genesis was at the end of November, and we read about the death of Sarah, and we saw the love that Abraham had for his wife and how he secured a place for her burial. Uh, but we also discussed the larger truths of how Christians respond to death and the loss of a loved one, uh, knowing that Christ truly is our hope in life and in death. And I've decided to spend uh, two Sundays in chapter 24. It's a long chapter. It's 67 verses, uh, and there's much to learn for us, uh, not only in the beautiful way that God has brought uh, Isaac and Rebekah together, but we will also learn how we are to choose a spouse, and ultimately we'll see a picture of the love God has for his son in giving him us, the church, as his bride. Do you have your... Genesis scripture journals. Uh, if you had bought those previous time to get those out again so you can take some good notes and we invite you to buy one there. I think there's some still in the back. You can pick one up and it'll aid you in your note taking as we continue to go through this book. Well, we have four points this morning and we'll see some other items of note along the way. We're going to look at three main characters. First, uh, we're going to see a caring father in the first nine verses. Uh, then we'll see a trusted servant in the first 14 verses there. Then we'll see an attractive woman in verses 15 through 21. And we will finish up together seeing how God answers prayer, an answer to prayer in verses 22 through 28. So we'll start in verse 1. This begins with Abraham once again. Now Abraham was old well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And the narrative at this point has started to shift over to Isaac, but Abraham, although advanced in years, has a serious role to play in finding a wife for his son. 
At this point, Abraham is 140 years old. Uh, Genesis 21 verse 5 tells us that Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. And Genesis chapter 25 verse 20 tells us that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And so all in all, Abraham is going to live 175 years. Uh, so even though we see Abraham passing away in the next chapter, the Lord still had 35 more years for him to live on this earth. And so there's a, a time span there of 20 or 35 years between chapter 24 and chapter 25. But we want to answer the question this morning, what was Abraham's role in finding a wife for Isaac and why was it important? Well, as Abraham will explain down in verse 7, the Lord had made covenant promises to him and to his offspring. So Abraham would be even more invested in assuring that Isaac would have a good wife before he died. In these days, the parents or the family chose a wife for their son. Uh, and we would call this arranged marriage today. And this was done to ensure the continuation and prosperity of the family as a whole. Uh, and it was a much bigger decision, one that required older and wiser parents and family to be involved. And it was usually done with little input from the bride and groom themselves. Uh, elsewhere in scripture, we see a similar thing happen with the story of Samson, although he intervenes and he subverts his parents' authority in that story. The practice of arranged marriage continued in the West, in Western cultures, until the early 1900s, uh, but then it, it dropped off, and we know, though, it still continues uh, in the East with Hindu and Jewish and uh, Muslim families. When we were up in Pennsylvania over the holidays, I had actually someone ask me uh, what I thought about arranged marriages. He said, do you think that's a good thing? And I said, well, that's a really interesting question. I had to think about it. And the truth is, is that scripture is silent on this issue. It's not commanded or condemned. We're just told that this was a common practice that, that happened among the Israelites and the Hebrews at this time. Although it's a foreign concept to us today in our country, I still think it can be a good thing. Now, maybe that's because I have three daughters and I want to ensure that they marry godly men. I don't know. Uh, it's, a very, it's a concern of mine. Um, but although we don't have a definitive command from the Lord on this type of marriage, we do have commands from Scripture on what kind of spouse we should marry. Uh, most importantly is that we marry within the family, within the people of God. That's what we see here with Isaac and Abraham, and it applies to us as well, clearly given to us in the New Testament and First and Second Corinthians, that believers are to marry believers. In fact, as Abraham calls his trusted servant, due to the serious nature of this task, he makes him swear. He makes him swear to follow three important criteria in this search for a wife. The first we see is in verse 3, where he says that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So this shows the separation that must take place between believers and unbelievers. 
Uh, as we know, the Canaanites were a very, very wicked, idolatrous people, and the Israelites were to have no part with them. Uh, we take note of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, which says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And so we see the serious nature uh, when it comes to this in the eyes of the Lord. The second criteria was that the servant was to choose a bride from Abraham's people, his kinsmen, to go back, in a sense, to his old country. And with his people, there would be a familiarity, there would be a trust, there would be a similar culture, and likely at least some kind of influence and understanding or belief, possibly, in the true God among Abraham's extended family. And then the third criteria was in verse 6. Abraham says to his servant, don't take Isaac there. Don't take him there. Well, why not? And the servant had a good question. He had a good thought. He said, well, what if the woman that I find doesn't want to come back with me? Should I take Isaac to help? and say, ah, yes, look at this handsome young man we have here. He's going to be a good husband. You should definitely take him. You should come with us. No, the Lord doesn't, doesn't have him do that at all. Because the Lord had taken Abraham out of his land and brought him to a new one. Look at verse 7. Abraham desired to be obedient to the Lord, to be firmly planted in this land. Verse 7 says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So he's saying, the Lord has given us this land. There is no going back. And so he was sparing his son Isaac from any temptation to return or to stray from the path that the Lord had set for them. And Abraham's concern and his involvement in this marriage process, also as we see his obedience to the Lord, that should spark a concern and a care for us as well. Uh, parents, and particularly fathers here this morning, we have a very important role to play in who our children would choose to marry. Now, we may not be handpicking their spouse per se, but we must be involved in this process from dating to engagement and into marriage. And so may I plead with you families here this morning, do not abdicate your role in this. Uh, our culture tells us the opposite, uh, that once children turn 18, they outgrow any instruction and should have nothing to do with these old fogies that they used to live with. Um, but that is not the counsel of Abraham. That is not the counsel of God's word. Uh, the fifth commandment of honor your father and mother has no age limit to it. And Pastor Pilgrim, I think, brought up last week that if we as parents do not disciple our children faithfully, then the world is going to be right there ready to do it for us. And that just doesn't mean when our children are young, but when they are 18, when they are 25, when they are even older. Uh, Vodi Bauckham, he says it very well in a book that he wrote. It's called, What He Must Be If He Wants to Marry My Daughter. He says, as a father, it is my responsibility to teach my daughter what these requirements are. What are the qualities 
that my daughter should be looking at. I should encourage her not to settle for less and to walk with her through the process of evaluating potential suitors. We need to reconsider our commitment to parental assistance in selecting a life partner in light of our biblical responsibility to protect our children's purity, to protect their hearts, to protect their focus, and even to protect their future spouse. This is very important. So may we, as families, may we, as fathers, disciple our children lovingly through this process whenever the Lord would decide. So in Abraham, we continue to see him setting an example of obedience to the Lord. We see his care for the future of Isaac, and we see his faith that the Lord would guide his servant to the best wife for Isaac. So with that, let's move to our second major character of this account, and that is our trusted servant. Now, we don't know for sure who this servant was. Uh, Some have suggested that it was Eliezer of Damascus. He's mentioned in chapter 15 as the one that was going to inherit Abraham's wealth. He was the heir uh, before Isaac came along. Uh, But regardless, we do know that this servant was very trusted because we can see how verse 2 describes Verse 2 tells us that he was in charge of all that Abraham had. And we know that Abraham had quite a lot. That would be uh, a big job. Uh, Throughout this account, this trusted servant uh, wasted no time, and he went about his master's business accurately and faithfully. And we can tell that he loved and he was devoted to Abraham. And we know this from the servant's favorite word, As you were reading through this account, can you tell what is the servant's favorite word? It's mentioned 17 times in this account. Master. It's master. He says master 17 times. So it shows us that he had received his orders and he would follow them to the letter. In fact, he took an oath that he would do it. And this continues to show us the serious nature of this quest. Now, the act of putting your hand under the thigh is also mentioned in Genesis 47 when Jacob asked Joseph to swear that he would not be buried in Egypt, but he would be returned to be buried along with Abraham and Isaac. Now, for us, as we consider uh, this act, it may seem a little bit too close for comfort for us, uh, but it was a common act at the time, and it harkened back to, and it was a reminder and a picture of circumcision, the sign of circumcision, to show that just as we are covenanted to God through circumcision, I, too, are going to be covenanted with you and swear to you uh, to fulfill this task that you are asking me to do. So it reminded them of circumcision. So our trusted servant, he makes an oath to Abraham, and he's about to set off on his journey. But before he goes, you'll notice that he is not alone. Look at the end of verse 7. We just read it. He said that he, God, will send his angel before you. And so this further shows us God's providential hand at work. Abraham sends his most trusted servant, and God sends one of his most trusted servants as well. At times in the Old Testament, we see God sending one of his angels along to provide protection. And we see it a couple of times in the book of Exodus when the Israelites were conquering the land. 
but we also see just a glimpse of this, very interesting, in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 14, referring to angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Have you considered this verse? It's interesting. Now, we have to be careful with this uh, because the idea that every believer has a guardian angel walking around with them, that is an invention of Hollywood. It's not God's word. Amen. So we can't go that far with it. Uh, but we do know that angels, in part, were created to serve believers. Uh, John MacArthur says that the angel's destiny is to serve forever those who are heirs of salvation. What a marvelous, comforting truth to know that angels minister to us. Yes, it is. Their destiny is to continue to minister to us throughout eternity. It is amazing. So our trusted, faithful servant sets out on his journey, not only with his master's blessing, but with God's angel along the way, ensuring his success. And verse 10 tells us about the dowry, about the bride price that will be paid to the bride's family. Another common practice at this time. There was 10 camels and all sorts of choice gifts. And as we know, Abraham was a very, very wealthy man. So these gifts would have shown his status, his wealth uh, to the family that was going to be part of the proposal. Now, we're not entirely sure where the servant went. We're pretty sure that he did not go all the way back to Ur, where Abraham had originally come from. We know this because the city of Nahor, uh, and uh, we have the word Mesopotamia as well. Now, the city of Nahor, that just refers to the city where Abraham's brothers, brother lived. So it's like saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to the city where Micah and Katrina live. I'm going to Bradenton, but that's the city of Micah and Katrina. So it's the city of Nahor. Uh, but the word Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, you may have a footnote in your Bible, is the Hebrew word Aram Naharaim. And most maps put it up near Haran, where Abraham's family had originally settled in. So you can see a simple map there where we think the servant went. So probably he did not go all the way back to Ur, but just up to near where Haran is. But regardless, it was a long journey. It was 400 to 600 miles. Uh, and if you've ever been on a camel, you know they don't go super fast. So it would have probably taken about a month for him to get there. It was a long trip. Uh, verse 11 says that as he came into town, he stopped at the well, uh, both to water his camels and to observe the women in the city as they came out to get water for the night. And so it's here and in the next couple verses that we see uh, another attribute of this servant, and also in verse 27. So not only was he a trusted, determined, serious, obedient, um, but most importantly, he believed and trusted in the God of Abraham and Isaac. He believed, he prayed, and he waited on the Lord to see what the Lord would do. Much for us uh, to consider in our own lives as we read this account. Look at his prayer in verse 12. And he said, O Lord, 
God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Excuse me. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So what do we see here in his prayer? We see a couple things. We see that he prays for success. Please grant me success today. We see that he appeals to the covenant relationship of God, uh, the, the covenant relationship that God has with Abraham. He says, you are the God of my master Abraham. Please show steadfast love to him. He asks the Lord for a sign to ensure he approaches the right woman. And then verse 21, a little bit farther down, tells us that he waits on the Lord and thoughtfully considers if she is the right one. And we'll see this in just a moment, but the final attribute I want to draw out from this uh, is in verse 26 and 27. In the midst of answered prayer, he gives praise back to Yahweh. And so to summarize this section, what are these attributes of this trusted servant? We see five things. We see that he is obedient to his master. He believes in the Lord. He is a man of prayer. He patiently waits on the Lord, and he praises the works of the Lord. As we consider our own lives before our triune God, we know that we are his servants. He is our master. He has saved us. Uh, and caused us not to be slaves of sin, but to be slaves of righteousness. And so there's much to consider in our own lives as we consider the example of this trusted servant. But with that, let's move to our third major character, and that is an attractive woman. In verse 15, well, it says, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So even before, friends, even before the servant had finished praying, God had started to answer his prayer. This is a quick answer, and it brings to mind Isaiah 65, 24, which says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. It just shows us God's sovereignty in our lives and hearing and responding to our prayers. So we see his providence at work here as he guides Rebecca to the well at the moment of the servant's prayer and how she did exactly what he was praying about. And so we have to consider for a moment, who was Rebecca? Well, we see a couple things about her here in this section. First, we see her relation to the family. 
She was Abraham's grandniece, the daughter of Abraham's nephew. And so this would mean that she is Isaac's cousin once removed. And if you remember, there was a sneak peek of Rebekah back in chapter 22, verse 23. You remember that someone handed Abraham the family newsletter of what was going on in Haran. In verse 20, it says, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Camuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And then here it is, Bethuel fathered Rebecca. So the first thing we see is her relation to the family. The second thing we see is her appearance. Our text tells us that she was very attractive, a maiden whom no man had known. Your translation may say that she is a virgin. So she is unmarried. She's at a good age to have children. So three boxes checked. She's attractive, she's single, and she's young. Very good. But then even more important Uh, to these things. The third thing we see is we catch a glimpse of her character. And the servant, sensing that this may be a good place to start with her, he goes and he asks for water. We just read that. Now, but look at the words that describe her actions. It says that she quickly gave him a drink. She quickly emptied her jar and ran to the well, and she drew water for all his camels. In verse 25, we'll see that she kindly offers lodging to both the servant and his entourage. And so what does this tell us about Rebecca? Well, Matthew Henry describes her as humble and industrious with a courteous disposition, showing hospitality to a stranger. And he says, in a word of application to us, he says, it is good to take all opportunities of showing a humble, courteous, charitable disposition, because sometime or other it may turn more to our honor and benefit than we think of. And this is true. This is just good general advice. As we, uh, as we come in contact with different people, that by God's grace we would be kind, we would be courteous, we would be helpful, and in God's providence we never know how we may bless that person, or in turn we may be blessed by them. Because little did Rebecca know that in this kind and gracious act to this stranger, that she would be catapulted into marriage with a wealthy man who was in covenant relationship with God, and that she herself would give birth to the next heir in the line of promise. How amazing is that? That she went to that well that day to get some water. Now, friends, how many camels did the servant bring with him. One of the kids, one of the kids, how many camels? Ten. Ten. Nick, you are not a child. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Zamber children. Okay. Yes, ten camels. Ten camels. Now, now friends, I don't know if you've worked with camels. I have not, but watering ten camels is not going to be an easy job. Uh, One camel, I learned, one camel, after a long journey, can drink up to 40 gallons of water, just for one. So you can imagine 10 milk jugs, or uh, 40, sorry, 40 milk jugs there that one camel could possibly drink. Now multiply that by 10. That's going to be a hard job. It's going to be done all by hand, and it's going to take quite a while. And so that shows Rebecca's hard work. 
uh, and the, the level of service that she was willing to go to to help this servant. And so verse 21 tells us that while this was happening, the servant is there gazing at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's considering this. He's bringing it to the Lord. And this, again, goes back to the qualities that we noted in Abraham's servant. Uh, One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 27. And in verse 14, we read this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that's the example we have from Abraham's servant. Well, we are going to discover more about Rebecca in next week's sermon. Uh, we'll see more as we continue the story. But for now, let's move on to our final point this morning in answer to prayer in verse 22. Verse 22 says, When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. And so through his reliance and trust in the Lord, Abraham's servant takes that next step in his proposal by giving her thousands of dollars worth of gold jewelry. A shekel is about one-fifth of an ounce, and the total weight of these gifts would have been over four ounces. So that would equal, in today's prices, uh, gifts of gold that were worth over $7,000. So these were expensive gifts that he gives to her right off the bat. And it was traditional to do this. This was part of the traditional jewelry that a bride would wear. And again, it shows, again, the wealth of the family who is making this proposal. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32 says, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? And so this was the beginning of a very special time in the life of Rebecca, one that she would not easily forget. Now, in verses 23 through 25, we see the Lord continuing to answer the prayer of this trusted servant because he, requ- he inquires about her family. And it's confirmed that she truly is a member of the family of Abraham and that he would be welcome to spend the night. So with that answer, it's all but confirmed in the servant's heart, that the Lord has answered his prayer. And then we see his attitude turn. His attitude turns towards one of praise, one of thankfulness, and one of worship. Look at verse 27. Uh, 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So he praises God for who he is and what he has done. And that's a pattern of worship that we see all throughout Scripture. And it continues today in our own prayers and in our own singing. He says, you are the God of Abraham. You are faithful. You have not forsaken your promise to show steadfast love to Abraham. This is who you are. And then this is what you have done. You have led me to the house of my master's family. And I love what Matthew Henry says again about prayer in his commentary on this chapter. He says, God in his providence, does sometimes wonderfully own the prayer of faith 
and gratify the innocent desires of his praying people, even in little things, that he may show the extent of his care and may encourage them at all times to seek to him and trust him. It's very true. We have a God who cares for us and that answers our prayer. It's only we often come to him with impatience and, and bitterness when he doesn't go along with our plans at times. But he is always good and always faithful in our lives. But there's two words in this servant's praise that I want to expound on for just a moment. Uh, they're the words there, steadfast love. Uh, and if you have a New American Standard or other version, it may say loving kindness. And this is an attribute of God that is seen over and over again in the Old Testament. And we've mentioned it before in our study, but it's one Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Uh, and it's, it has the meaning of grace, of mercy, of faithfulness, of goodness, and devotion. That's all wrapped up in that word. It's used about 240 times in the Old Testament, uh, with a majority of those being found in the book of Psalms. And the word truly shows us the unchanging strength and love of our faithful God. A Vine's expository dictionary defines it as this. It is one of his most central characteristics. God's loving kindness is offered to his people who need redemption from sin, enemies, and troubles. A recurrent refrain describing God's nature is that he abounds in chesed. The entire history of Yahweh's covenantal relationship with Israel can be summarized in terms of chesed. It is the one permanent element in the flux of covenantal history. Even the creation is the result of God's chesed. His love lasts for a thousand generations, indeed forever. And I don't have to tell you, friends, that our, the word love in our culture has been continuing to be misused and overused. Uh, and because of that, I think we start to lose a true definition of what love is. It's easy for us to have an incomplete understanding of God's love for his people, it's not sappy, it's not over-emotional, and it's, it's not just a little bit deeper than the word like, because that's what love has been, it's just what it's come to here in our culture, that we say things like, well, I like those tacos, but I love these tacos. I mean, there's not much difference there. And so we have, we've, we've misused and overused the word love. And we need to come back to a proper understanding of God's covenantal love for his people and know that it's rooted in strength, in faithfulness, in mercy, in goodness, in devotion. And we just sang this morning, uh, only a holy God. And James did just a, a great job in explaining and drawing our affections to the holiness of God. And when we do this, when we grow in and appreciate and understand God's holiness in light of our sinfulness, when we see his grace and his mercy and his love demonstrated in the person and work of Christ, that is what is going to help us to understand and appreciate God's steadfast love. We can grow in our understanding of it. We have to get to know God. We know who God is. That helps us. Well, our final verse this morning uh, tells us that Rebecca ran to tell her family about what had just happened. Big news, Mom. I'm getting hitched. Uh, I don't, she probably said that, probably, but maybe not. Um, 
We'll, we'll stop here this morning, uh, and next week we're going to see what Rebecca's family thinks of this proposal. Uh, and then we're going to learn more about the character of Rebecca as she journeys back to Hebron to marry Isaac. Uh, but as we finish up this morning, you know, we've already seen uh, several points of application for us in the, action, in the actions of Abraham. We've seen the importance of parents being involved in the dating and marriage relationships of their children. Uh, in Abraham's trusted servant, we see that a servant of God is one who is obedient, one who is marked by belief and trust, one who is marked by prayer, one who is patient and responds to the works of God with praise. In Rebekah, we see attributes of kindness, hospitality, hard work, and humility. Um, there's definitely marks of a Proverbs 31 women found in her. Now, these are all things that we can model and that we can grow in as we seek to honor the Lord with our lives. But I'd like to draw us to a beautiful picture of God's love for the church, the bride of his son. And Abraham, of course, is an exemplary example of obedience to God as he lays out the criteria for a proper wife for his son. Uh, we know that a bride for Isaac was crucial to continue the chosen line that would lead to the Messiah. And in this, we can see a picture of God's own work in securing a beautiful bride for his son. And that's the church. In Matthew 22, Jesus gives a parable illustrating this very thing. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. That's verse 2. We'll get to the other one, the other one later there. Um, but elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that the church is spoken of as a bride in 2 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5. And in Romans 7, we see Paul using the example of marriage to tell us that we have died with Christ and now we belong to him. Or sorry, we have died to the law and we now belong to Christ. And so just as Abraham wanted to choose a bride for his son, so God the Father has chosen a bride for his son. Now why did he do this? Well, was it because his son Jesus was lacking something that he was incomplete in some way as some humanistic teaching and songs would tell us? No, absolutely not. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is totally self-existent and self-sufficient. He needs absolutely nothing. And the bride of Christ, the church, is a gift of love from God the Father to his Son. We, we often emphasize that Jesus was sent by God as a gift to us, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this is true. Uh, but of course, we must not miss the other side of this. Uh, all through John chapter 17, Jesus clearly says that believers are a gift to him from his father. Uh, verse 6 explains it. Well, Jesus says, I have manifested your, your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And verse 11, verse 12, and verse 24 all expound on this truth. 
The Bible teaches that before the creation of the world, God chose a people for his son. The son agreed to die for their sins, and the Holy Spirit agreed to regenerate and to indwell these people as they respond with trust in Christ's finished work and are adopted into his family. All to the praise of his glorious grace. The church is Christ's special people. We are his inheritance, his bride. And so we see an illustration of this in Abraham's care of Isaac. But how much more love, care, consideration does God have for his own son? So much more. It is really beyond amazing. And so the question that we're going to end with, the question we have for you this morning is, are you part of God's people? Have you been adopted into his family? Matthew 22 tells us that there is a wedding feast awaiting us when Christ returns. And the invitation to that feast is being sent out right now. So we call you this morning to repent. If you have not trusted Christ, repent of your sins. Trust in Christ alone to save you. There is no other way, friends. Jesus' parable in Matthew 22 ends with a very sobering and disturbing warning. And friends, we want none of this for you. At the end, it seems as though there were some who had, were not wearing the proper garments. And that's a picture of the new clothes that Jesus gives us as he washes our sins white as snow. There are some that, that were not wearing that clothing. And so in verse 13, the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The consequence for rejecting the invitation, for rejecting the son is eternal judgment. It will be horrible and unending. And so we, again, if you do not know the Lord, come to Christ today. Come talk to me afterward. Come ask so many of us here would love to share with you. For the rest of us, may we be considering our lives before the Lord as we have looked at the examples of Abraham and of this trusted servant and of Rebecca herself. May we come in prayer to the Lord, asking as we continue to come into this new year that the Lord uh, would conform us to the image of his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then I also invite you to read ahead uh, the rest of Genesis 24, and we will continue that next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you in awe of your amazing grace, your amazing work in our lives, knowing that you have secured a people for yourself. You have secured us as the bride for your son. Lord, we do not deserve this at all. There's nothing in us that would claim this, but you and your amazing grace have done this work. We thank you for your son who went to the cross on our behalf to take our sins upon himself and to give us his perfect righteousness. Lord, we also praise you today for your word, which gives us the example of Abraham, the example of this trusted servant and the example of Rebecca. Lord, thank you for these things we've learned. May we walk in truth. May we walk with you desiring to please you in these ways, knowing that you are the one that produces these things in us. Lord, you are our rock, and our redeemer. And so as we come to you in song once again, may these words be true in our lives. May all our days bring glory to your name.
I thank you for each one who's here today. Thank you for friends, both, both old and new. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room who desire to serve you and love you and to be an example uh, to the world around us. We ask that you would give us opportunities this week to share of your love, of your steadfast love that goes on forever to a thousand generations. What an amazing truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.